So how do I raise a body positive kid? I think the best you can do is really scaffold a body positive home and scaffold body positive environments and really raise a critical thinker. It's about having a belief that, that all humans are created equally. Hello, and welcome to Equip to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is so worth it. I'm Christina Safran, and today I'm joined by Zoe Bisbing. She's a licensed psychotherapist who runs her own eating disorder therapy practice, an educator who spent many years helping families build body-positive homes through her podcast and her website, uh, previously the Full Bloom Project, although she's now working on body-positive home workshops. And like Equip, Zoe really hones in on the role of families and the home environment when it comes to healing body image and relationships to food. Her mission is to help families navigate an appearance-obsessed culture and really decrease the risk for disordered eating and body image injury. I am so excited for you to listen in as Zoe and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Zoe. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, I'm going to get started kind of at the beginning, which is just... Tell me a little bit more about how you started working with people with eating disorders. In grad school, I think I knew when I went to grad school to become a therapist, I I had a sense that I wanted to work in eating disorders, actually having no idea what it meant to work with eating disorders. I'd come from the dance world, so I had this sense of like, I don't know what it means to not like your body or to think your body's wrong and then to recover on from that into I mean I think it was like a very basic understanding um but it did drive my interest and so during grad school I did like an internship in an eating disorder center and then my first job after grad school is where I met you on the inpatient unit at near near Presbyterian so I went thinking oh I really want to work with eating disorders I'm going to work with all these dancers and people that have eating disorders and then of course, I started to learn about this true psychiatric illness and learned so much on this interdisciplinary team. And I, I just really found the whole thing fascinating. I love the interdisciplinary nature of it and especially the family component. But I think I went in with almost a naivete about it and then discovered that it was far more fascinating than I thought in the first place. And here I am. And how did this evolve into the Full Bloom Project and what inspired you to move even more into this body positive parenting space? I went to grad school with someone named Leslie, who is a dear friend, and we were in grad school together. We were both very interested in working with eating disorders, and then we got certified in family-based treatment around the same time and opened practices around the same time and had kids around the same time. So we were like pregnant. Uh, doing FBT in our respective practices and like in full disclosure, just burning out, like feeling so overwhelmed and frustrated with just all of it, working with physicians that didn't get it, parents that required so much more psychoeducation than we could possibly offer. I mean, everything you know, Christina. (laughs) Um, And I think especially becoming parents ourselves and we were doing these like little mom retreats where we'd go away and like I basically just talk about our cases and our kids. And we started to think about what could we do on the front end? What is prevention? And we just took a really deep dive into the prevention literature, which, as you know, kind of cuts across so many different disciplines. And through our podcast, which we had, the Full Bloom podcast, it just featured interviews with all of these originally started with researchers, but activists, writers, 
and continued to sort of connect the dots. And over the over the past several years, I've really f- put it all into a, a learning framework that I use in workshops and, you know, in bite-sized chunks, whether it's, you know, on social media or wh- wherever, to help people see both what they can do in a, you know, step-by-step way to create almost like buffering spaces at home, but really pull from all of these different disciplines, which ultimately it's like a social justice project, as you know, but it also requires like a deep understanding of the the science of eating disorders as well. So it's been a, a sort of, um, yeah, put, uh, Connecting the dots. That's the word I was looking for. And I mean, I, I, it was all while I was becoming a parent and raising three kids. It's like, you know, it becomes just super important to do both. So I always joke like I'd like to put myself out of business, but I don't think I will um, given the state of eating disorders. But if we can protect and prevent, I want to teach parents and educators like all that they need to know, not so that there's 100% certainty because obviously you can't always. But there's so much we can do to increase protection, decrease risk, and that's what I'm after. Well, couldn't agree with you more there. And yeah, that is always what I'm saying. I really, really want to put myself out of business by the end of <laughs> my lifetime, but a lot of work to do. The, the world is making it hard for us. It's um, true. I think pivoting into, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time that frustrates me is, well, you know, families should only be like only perfect families should be involved and like in in the eating sort of recovery process who's a perfect family and particularly on that if a family has their own stuff with food and body they can't be involved in the healing process of their loved one which i'm always like no all the more reason that they need to be involved in the healing process and also who doesn't have their own stuff around food and body in this world that we live in? I'd love for you to just comment a little bit on why it is so essential that families are involved in this recovery process and perhaps even more so when they do have their own stuff around food and body. Oh, it's so essential. I mean, you know, there are ex- extenuating circumstances where a family member, as you know, like is really not suitable to participate. But for the most part, absolutely. It's you can totally, the healthiest part of you is usually the part that's driving the car of your child's recovery. You know what I mean? Like you're in a survival state and if you can absorb the education and essentially do what you're told, like even if you're struggling with your own eating disorder, you can do it. And it's essential because as you know, like an eating disorder, it's a family illness. It's like, it just is. And so even if you didn't get the parent involved in the refeeding, it like the sibling is suffering because it, they need to understand everything. So the amount of psychoeducation alone is it's just imperative. So I think that with un, with with knowledge is power and understanding comes calm, like all of these things. And so wherever a young person is in the process, like family is essential. And I agree with you that there there is no perfect family. And we have to start from a place of like, yeah, you might have increased risk. That's okay. Like you're here now and you're going to be the best person possible to help your kid because you're the expert in the kid and nobody loves your kid as much as you do. So I do think that's really important. And also to like just give language to understand this. I mean, I know you and I see eye to eye, like it's terrible how little people know about eating disorders. So that's why people don't notice when their kids are actually struggling until it's really far, far gone. And I think that, 
even if you just think about like macro, like if one family can get pulled into their child's eating disorder recovery, that family can then become a resource to another family or to another family member or just can be one more person that understands and then can be, you know, it, it might seem small and insignificant, but it's not. And so I often think as terrible as developing an eating disorder is, sometimes the information that comes out, you know, and that the knowledge that an individual can accrue, a family, it, it can be sort of like the, the education you never got that you always needed, which is sort of the goal of Body Positive Home now. I 100% agree. And I, I think particularly around fighting diet culture, the reality is we're working upstream every day, but like we are entering kids back into the world that are going to need to be fighting the culture. And there's no better ally than their own family at home, knowing how to do that work with them in order to help them inoculate against this diet culture. And I guess speaking of diet culture, as I said, we enter a world that is yelling everything that our eating disorder used to tell us, um, especially for folks who are in large bodies. And so I, I'd be curious with this lens, because I have a bias that I think the definition of eating disorder recovery has left out uh, work around fighting diet culture and health at every size and fat phobia for the rest of your life. You know, I'd be curious how you define eating disorder recovery within, within that lens in this crazy world that we enter into. The first thing that came to mind, I realized, was sort of more individualistic. Like eating disorder recovery to me feels like a person's sort of journey towards complete food and body liberation. That's pretty individualistic. I think that's my answer because I do think like eating disorder recovery is hard enough. <laughs> like let, that, yeah, let, that, let it just yeah, be your own journey. Yeah, you don't owe anything yeah, yeah. to anybody. But I do think that there is a – you know, I do think that activism can fuel recovery. You know, this idea of your own personal food and body liberation, it, it, it does impact the world, right? And so I do think we all need to be fighting for more body liberation for all, but it's also okay if recovery is defined by your own personal journey. Yeah, I love that. Um, I talk to a lot of parents and perhaps like the number one question that I get for folks who, you know, don't have kids who have eating disorders, but it's just like, how, how do I, how do I raise kids who are going to be body positive in this world? Like what are I, and I know you could write a book on this, uh, but what would you say to families as like the key essential ingredients to raising body positive kids? I would start by saying, we don't know for sure that the kids we're raising are going to be body positive. You know, like we don't have that complete control. But at best, if we're trying to raise body positive kids, we're raising a kid who at least can have internalized at least one adult, like an important adult in their life that really embodies body positive values, which really just are, it's just a, a value, a belief that all bodies are good bodies and all bodies, regardless of any of it, are worthy of a positive regard for one's own body and respect and dignity. And like, even if you're... <laughs> your kid grows up to be like, I don't care about any of that, you know, or which I could see maybe one of my kids just sort of rebelling and being like, oh, that crazy lady who raised me who couldn't stop talking about. <laughs> I do think that it's, it's just having a sense that somebody gives a shit about this sort of thing, you know? And so how do I raise a body pos positive kid? I think, you know, the best you can do is really scaffold a body positive home and scaffold body positive environments and really raise a critical thinker. 
And I think there's a lot of debate around what body positivity even means. I don't see eye to eye on a lot of people about it because I don't actually think it has anything to do with having a positive feeling towards your own body. I think it's much more of like a value system towards human bodies in general. But I do think it's it's about having a belief that all humans are created equally and that bodies are human. Mm-hmm. I love that. Will you just dig into that a little bit more, how you don't necessarily agree with how body positivity has been co-opted? I, I think I know where you're going, but. Well, it, it's, it cuts in both ways. Like, I think the the hashtag body positive from like the 2000s in like social media with, I had a, I had a six pack, now I have a two pack and one roll. I'm body positive. Like, ugh. that's not it, folks. Like, that's not it. But I, I sometimes hear people say things like, we have to move beyond body positivity to fat positivity, that body positivity leaves people out, that it's really about body liberation. And yeah, I think you pick what word you vibe with. I think of body positivity as like an umbrella, like it's an umbrella term. And so a lot of people, especially the people that I work with in my clinical practice and even the the folks that find me on social media, these people are not always ready for fat positivity. They're not necessarily interested yet or ever in fat liberation. Am I? Totally. And there's a community of people that need to be brought in. And so there's something about this, again, the umbrella body positivity to me is just a belief system that human beings that have bodies, regardless of what they look like, size, shape, color, function, form, whatever, that level of ability, that everybody deserves to have a positive relationship with their body. It doesn't mean that everybody will or that that everybody's aspiring to that, right? I mean, I understand even from conversations I've had with folks that work with trans kids, for example, like they're not someone with gender dysphoria, we're not trying to get them to feel positive towards their body. Like neutrality is a great goal, but I don't think that neutrality and positivity, body positivity are in conflict. They're not at odds. It's like we have the way we regard our own body and then the sort of dignity, like, and the, what we extend to others, which is just like, yes, we all deserve to, to be treated positively and to regard our bodies in a positive way, even if that's not what we ultimately can do or choose to do. Yeah. No, ultimately meeting people where they are on their journey. And I've certainly had my own lessons in this of, you know, friends of mine who are struggling with their own weight stigma who don't live in the eating disorder field, because I think sometimes we forget that we are in this little bubble, who are just like, fat positivity is like so outside of what I'm even comfortable talking about right now that I need to approach them a little bit closer to where they are. Yes, that would be my ultimate goal that they get there. But if I'm like, you meet me here or else, you know, it's going to shut off the conversation. Completely. Completely. Well, how about, you know, digging a layer deeper? Because I'll I'll hear often, you know, parents saying, I want to raise a body confident child, but (laughs) I'm also worried about you know, the health consequences of my child being at a higher weight, especially uh, because my family has a history of diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera. What do you say to these families? I'm sure you get this question all the time. Totally. And of course you do. Like, of course you care about these things. And ideally you want both, right? Like if you really want to think about well-being, optimal well-being would be like doing well in all of those areas, right? Like, not everybody can experience 
health in the way that we want, right? And there are genetics that like some families are just going to birth children that over time will develop high blood pressure anyway, even if they ate the quote perfect diet. So, but I I think it's a very common question and some people, I think it, it sort of speaks to people's default to that black and white thinking of like, well, body confidence, um, they eat whatever they want. I never, I never tell them no, (laughs) like all foods are good foods. I mean, it's like, it's not a sound bite. Like there is a whole feeding structure that you need to like implement in order to promote food neutrality, for example, in your home. Um, and I think I think if we want to raise as close to body confident kids as we can, we want them to also be, as you would guess, intuitive eaters. And we want them to have like skills, not just around being able to learn how to eat nutritious foods, but and the, you know, when I say that, I mean like the foods that parent who's asking that question wants, right? I want my kids to eat vegetables and chicken and that requires a little bit more practice versus like pizza and ice cream, which like it's just easier to accept. So there is that project of like helping kids learn how to accept a wide variety of foods because ultimately we do want people eating varied diets as varied as they can. I'm thinking about my neurotypical kids out there that like it's going to look different from them, right? So, but also we want kids to be able to eat without guilt and shame. And that's the part that's often forgotten, right? So the goal would be to be able to have, and I want to arm families with like, again, the scaffolding, like guidance for like, well, how do I do that, right? Because so much of it has to do with how, how we stock our pantries, how we set up meals, how we talk about food, and also attuning to your unique child. So in my family, if we have, which we do, a history of things like diabetes and high blood sugar, um, high blood pressure, et cetera, you know, I, I don't want my kids connecting food to those things right now because small children need nothing. They don't need to know anything about that. That's an adult conversation. It, it's okay to be trying to strike a balance and do that cost-benefit analysis for you and your unique family and your unique, unique kid. Well, it's a nice pivot into kind of the other question that I get that I'm sure you do of, oh, my, my, my kid's just eating junk and they're not getting the sufficient nutrition and they just eat junk food all day. And I think especially for parents who are trying to be less restrictive and open the flexibility of all foods are good foods and all foods fit, and there is sometimes that first natural reaction of a kid who's been restricted for a really long time to go heavy on foods that have been restricted. So how do you engage in that conversation and like tangibly, you know, maybe some examples for families who are struggling with my kid will never touch a vegetable? Oh, yeah. I had um, a conversation uh, yesterday with somebody about this. And first of all, it's all about exposure to some extent, right? Like we have to do as the best job we can do at offering a wide variety of foods to our kids. If they're showing a preference for the foods that this person is categorizing as junk versus the foods that maybe they would categorize as healthy, because lots of people think that way. Even my kids, by the way, who years ago I tried to tell them, like, we're not going to use the word junk food. You know, I think I was going with like play food or something that, I don't know, at the time. And at some point they were like, we understand that it's not morally bad. Like, we're still going to use the word junk food. <laughs> I was like, that's fine. fine. <laughs> just, I'm not going to die on that hill. It's like, fine, junk food. As so long as you don't think you're junk for eating it, fine. I don't really care. 
But anyway, I think that as the parent, you are allowed to be in charge of what's being served in your house to your kids. I think optimally we are able and not all of us are. All of us deserve the the right to be able to stock our fridges and pantries with a wide variety of things, meaning that our kids are seeing chips and they're also seeing chicken or carrots or whatever, right? And so you would be the one who maybe with some guidance can know best what kind of ratio of those things do you need to offer such that there's no scarcity for your kid and there are enough repeated exposures of the foods that are sort of less interesting to your kids that over time they get a chance to build those what we call food acceptance skills. So this is a dance. It's an art. It's not going to be the same for each kid. I think about this when I put dessert on the plate with the meal, which is like a, I think a really good eating disorder prevention hack. Like just put the dessert with the food, with dinner, with the with the meal, and then you sort of created food neutrality on the plate and say, like, I don't, I don't mind which order you eat it in, right? And you'd think all the kids would reach for the chocolate first. But in my family of three kids, I have one child that always waits. Like he always wants to go last for his dessert. No one told him you have to eat your chicken before you eat your your chocolate, but that's his preference. Whereas the other kids, <laughs> sometimes it's they just eat the chocolate and that's it. But the point is it's a long, it's like a long view project. And I do think that we are so under-resourced in our communities about this. I mean, we, we're not even going to the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations and all that. That's another episode, obviously. But the mere fact that like any family would be told something like your kid needs to eat more vegetables without any education around how children actually developmentally learn to accept new foods is mm-hmm. mind-boggling. But you want to know something? Even as an eating disorder provider, I never even knew about that until I started Full Bloom. I didn't even know about the sort of project that is helping your kids to like build eating competency skills. So there's something very wrong with the lack of information out there, and it makes it very hard. So then, then people parents have these questions without like clarity as to where to look, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you're saying like, it, it takes a while, like it, it takes a while and you got to do multiple exposures and, you know, introducing all of the things without like, this is better than that, or this belongs only, only you can only have this if you have that. It's just continuing to offer a wide variety of foods and they will sort themselves out. I think so. I mean, I think too, depending on your kid, there are there's so many creative ways to explore new foods too. And there are selective eaters, kids that really are going to need additional intervention, like working with somebody, you know, that's fine. A parent might need to go consult with an occupational therapist or a, a pediatric dietitian or somebody that specializes in selective eating. I think this is really big in neurodiverse kids. So it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. However, what I think can be a really naturally, like very or- organic, not in the <laughs> organic kale way, but like an organic way to just bring in more opportunities for creative food exposure is exploration. Like you can, with little kids, you can do art projects with vegetables and with no expectation that they eat the vegetable, that counts. You can put like actual fruit in their play kitchen if you want. You can invite them to smell a food or or like listen to it rustle and make sure they know that there's five different ways to explore a food because you have five senses 
and you don't have to eat it. That's really important and something that I feel like everybody needs to know. Like it all counts. Them seeing you eat the food you want them to eat is is huge. And to your point, it takes so much time and it's okay if it takes time so long as like they're growing, you know, if their pediatrician's worried, if there's nutrition, vitamin deficiencies, you'll know. And then you might need a, a special care. But for the most part, it's just we have to keep our eye on like what will they be like at 18, at 25, like not he didn't eat his vegetable today. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Because you brought up the American Academy of Pediatrics, maybe I'll just ask you for a second. Have you seen, I know it's absolutely horrifying for any listener who who doesn't yet know, essentially the American Academy of Pediatrics issued guidance that children as young as 12 should be on weight loss, weight loss medications like Ozempic and as young as 13 should consider bariatric surgery, which is absolutely horrifying. Have you seen in your practice more parents coming in, bringing that to you as like, but the AAP, and if so, what do you say to them? I haven't yet had that experience. It's come up more with adult patients, actually, who are somewhat stymied by it, just the existence of Ozempic. And like, you know, here they are doing the good work to like really try to accept their bodies as they are and try to lean into even fat liberation, especially if folks in, in fat bodies and it's, it's, it's thrown a monkey wrench because then it becomes this like, wait, should I be? Is that betraying my values to, to go that route? Or like, would it actually just help? You know, I mean, and that becomes a very, very interesting conversation to have. And self-determination is everything there. So I, I've enjoyed those conversations. Um, with kids, no. And I don't, I'm sure that will change over time as this sort of gets going. But the guidance that I'm giving people is just to really demand shared decision-making with your pediatrician because your values need to be at the center of this decision because it, it's, there's, it's, it's complicated and there are psychological implications. And I don't pretend to know what's right for any one particular child and one particular family, but I want parents to know that they're allowed to ask questions and they're allowed to say no. And then I guess, what advice do you have for parents who are really wanting to do this work, but struggling with their own weight stigma and shame around their own bodies? Look, if if it were possible, I would want everyone to go to therapy. Yep. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> we had a healthcare system that enabled that. Uh. <laughs> but you know what, Christina, even if we did, and you know this, like, even if we got it, it there wouldn't be enough people that understood how to actually treat disordered eating, right? This is a culture of disordered eating. The whole culture has an eating disorder. It's like, (laughs) you know, and I think some of those people are confused. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean recovery? Like, this is normal. (laughs) It's like, is it? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. whoa. Mm -hmm. I do think that if you can, especially if you notice like a lot of anxiety around this stuff. I had a, a message earlier today from a parent who was saying a beautiful question. She like really wants her kids to have you know, peaceful relationship with food and body. And she shared that she has a history of orthorexia and her child loves pepperoni, which is like a food that I, she's aware is giving her so much anxiety. And it was so interesting in the question. She was so thoughtful, but she was also naming one of the reasons for why it's so hard for her to kind of deal with her kid's love of pepperoni. 
at least this woman knows to ask the question. And so I feel like meeting everybody where they are on that spectrum, it's like, yeah, if you can be in therapy, great. If you can heal your own relationship with food and body, like with all your free time as a busy parent, like great. But the reality is there are decent resources, you know, there are, and that's what I'm trying to build with Body Positive Home, almost like little bite-sized opportunities for people to heal on their own time and terms, even if they can't make it to, to therapy, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Body Positive Home? Yes, I can. So what it is, is a like a learning and healing hub for anybody who is raising, interacting with a kid that they hope can be body positive and or enjoy a more peaceful relationship with food and body than they did. And the goal is to really bring people together who it's like the demographic we're talking about, right? People who really kind of grew up with just disordered eating that maybe some of them had full-blown eating disorders, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they're just limping along with disordered eating and like shitty body image, but are coming together in an effort to do better for the next generation, which is one of the most profound motivators I've seen, even just working with eating disorder clients who get pregnant and then all of a sudden remission because of that, that dedication. And so my goal is to essentially teach the skills that I've learned working at every different level of care and eating disorder treatment to, to anyone and everyone, because I think that you don't have to have a full-blown eating disorder to benefit from those skills. And what I want everyone to do is really apply the skills that I teach to make each and every room in your home a place that is boosting the body confidence and the food piece that we want for our kids. And I, I know that there are, there's like a concept there that people are like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. But I want Body Positive Home to be a place where people can come to learn how to actually scaffold a bathroom that you can find ways to confront your own nakedness and sneak in a little body exposure through that, right? Learn how to leverage activities of daily living, just like taking your medication. How do you destigmatize mental illness by being like, yep, I'm taking my Zoloft. What's that, mommy? Oh, I'll tell you. We've got a history of anxiety in our family. Like, how do we talk about these things, period products, right? And then back to what we were talking about with how do we want to feed and how do we want to stock our pantries? And so I, I want these to be just practical skills that anybody can access. And I don't want people to have to get an eating disorder to benefit from those skills. I mean, that's the big problem, right? I love that because I am constantly referring people over to your resources. I think so many parents are just hungry for this information and it's going to be a great resource. So it's been a pleasure having you here, Zoe. I have a couple more quick questions before we wrap it up. Finish the following statement with your first thought. Connection is? The human experience. Body image is? Malleable. Diet culture is? profoundly oppressive. And recovery is? Deeply personal. How can all the listeners stay in touch with you? You can follow me on Instagram if you're on there at My Body Positive Home, and you can find me at bodypositivehome.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, Zoe, and for all the incredible work you put out into the world. I so appreciate what you do and the difference you're making. It is so needed. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Christina. You too. 
Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.